Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Heckman. I'm one of your elders. I am not one of the pastors in this church. My job is taken. Thank you very much. The uh, text for this morning is printed in your program. It's the uh, letter of 2 John, and we're going to go through the whole thing. So uh, everyone who is able, I would invite you to stand, and we'll read it, and we will just jump right in. The word of God to the church this morning. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly. To find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Father. And the Son, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy might be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we confess this morning that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and maintaining in righteousness. We ask this morning that you would move among us in such a way that we could be your servants and that you would equip us to be ready for every good work. Amen. So, uh, true story. It wasn't today, but it was a day very much like today when I was on my way to church, this church. It's a bright, sunny day. I was early. I probably had to teach or something, and I might have been a little preoccupied. I might have also forgotten that that little stretch of Josie, north of Hebron, is technically a hospital zone. But it was okay because a friendly police officer (laughs) took time out of his busy day To remind me of that fact, greatly appreciated. Part of the conversation uh, was he asked me, you know, where I was going so early. Now, the fact that I had my vintage Metrocrest name tag on (laughs) really didn't leave a lot to the imagination, and so I told him. But he said, it's okay, speeding is not a sin. But he still wrote me a note to remind me not to do it again. (laughs) 
And it did have a bill attached to it. So it might have been an indulgence. I'm not exactly sure. Now, I'm not really in the habit of taking spiritual advice from agents of the state. But if what he was saying is that careening carelessly without any regard for human life through an area filled with newborn babies and infirm people was somehow a morally neutral life choice, I had to disagree. And I told him so, and I told him that uh, that behavior was not consistent with the way I sought to lead my life in the church that I represented, and so I apologized. I said it was wrong of me to do that. Now, I do want to uh, hasten to point out that there actually wasn't any careening going on. There actually wasn't a single soul on the streets that morning. Nobody was endangered, and I promise you, it was just going maybe just a skosh, just a little bit over the limit. But the point is still valid. And the question is, question on John's mind, and one of the questions for us this morning, of course, is how much of a difference do the things that we believe actually make in our daily lives, in the choices that we make, both large and small, and how we spend our time and our, and our energy and our resources and how we perceive ourselves and the world around us and where we fit in it. And, and the many ways, both large and small, in which those choices that we make are on display to the world around us, whether we, live, whether we realize it or not. And this is one of the things that's on the mind of the Apostle John in our passage for this morning. John is making the point very simply that the way we walk is as at least important as what we believe or the way we talk. And the way... And along the way, he makes this reference, this interesting transition from a really practical set of advice about how we should live our lives to what may seem like an obscure point of doctrine. But it's all tied together, I think. And let's, uh, let's dive in. I invite you to keep the text open as we take a closer look. So a little background on the text. Of course, it's a letter written by John, the same John that gives us the Gospel of John. You may wonder who the elect lady is that he's writing to, that the letter is addressed to. But I think if you read the text a little more carefully, you realize that John is using the term metaphorically. Um, He's leveraging this metaphor that the church is the bride of Christ, and her children would be the members. And so he's reminding the church, he's leveraging this metaphor to remind the church that part of being the church is to be in a faithful, committed, long-term relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk with him, And of course, after the death and resurrection of Christ, John ministered uh, mainly in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And as he worked with those churches, um, he encountered a number of issues that I think that we would actually find very familiar today. And of course, John is a big ideas kind of guy. If you need a reminder, just open up the, the pages of his gospel. I'm sure at Christmas time you read that to all your children around the tree, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was... Okay, it's a little heady. And if you doubt that, even in this letter, look how he opens it. Look how many times he mentions the truth just in the first three verses. He's very concerned about the truth. But it's not his only concern, is it? It's not his only focus. Truth for him, for John, is not an abstract concept. So he goes on to talk about how it's related to love and how it's related to life. For John, truth is a person. So let's parse this out. First of all, 
Notice that in the letter, John is referring to only some of the children of the elect lady. This would have been members of a church or maybe members of the churches in Asia Minor. John has had some sort of contact with them that has demonstrated to him that they were walking in the truth. They were walking in the truth. But he doesn't assume that all of them are. Well, how is this possible? Let's just step back for a moment. Think about these particular churches. These, of course, are the churches that were founded on the blood of the, of the risen Savior. These were churches in which the power of the Holy Spirit was uniquely at work while the church was growing explosively in these early days, where the apostle John himself, who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who ate with him, who was with him for that 40 days after the resurrection to be taught by Jesus, was, was ministering. How is it possible that you could have a front row seat in that kind of church and not be walking in the truth? Well, this is a problem we still face today, isn't it? Even though we don't have all of those things, it's still possible. You know, the Reformers had a, a useful phrase. They used to talk about the visible church and the invisible church. So you are here. You're here. You're part of the visible church. You're part of the visible church because you're here today. And maybe even better, maybe you're a member somewhere. In some way, you're associated with this thing that we call the church. That's an awesome thing. There are a lot of Americans who can say the same thing. But the real question for all of us this morning is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Is your heart a million miles away today? Or is it seeking after Christ? So this is a widespread issue in our society, obviously. If you, uh, even though uh, being uh, called a Christian is no longer as socially advantageous as it once was, a lot of people still call themselves Christians in this country, and the pollsters would tell you that. But when the pollsters dig a little bit deeper and they ask more questions about how they live their lives, you find that a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, would also say, yeah, but I haven't really been to church in a long time. And they, they don't live their lives according to the ethical standards that Christ has given us. And they aren't familiar even with the basic teachings of Christianity. So in other words, they're essentially indistinguishable from their non-Christian neighbors. They may think that they have the truth at some level, but the way they're walking is exactly the same way their neighbors are. Of course, this is even more common during the Reformation, where if you were just born in the right place, you were a member of the visible church. But the Reformers were very concerned with the existence of the invisible church. These are people inside the church for whom the Holy Spirit is doing a work, regenerating them, calling them to himself, doing a work of transformation, people whose hearts had been turned to God and for whom the truths of the gospel were not just academic. They were actually the source of spiritual joy and the power for living a renewed life Every day, the Israel of God, so to speak. And this, this is the church that John is referring to in his letter. Those who are walking in the truth. They were showing it in the way that they were living their lives. And apparently this was more about more than just making upright moral choices, about not careening through hospital zones and doing those types of things, but about the truth working itself out in their daily lives through love. Well, what is love? Even the Halliday guys didn't know what love was. Modern society, we don't know what love is. I think the, the zeitgeist says that love, 
All love is is, is, um, is the wholehearted, unreserved acceptance of whatever it is you're into. Right? That's love. Anything less is hate. And there's really no in-between, is there? There's no room for speaking into your life in love. It's really kind of the modern version of that 60s slogan that some of you may remember. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Awesome. And as long as we're talking about American civil religion, I think one of the cornerstones of American civil religion is self-love, right? This is the most important kind of love we can have. Harold Bloom, in his book on the American religion, said this. He said, uh, the American religion is essentially a spiritual quest in which the self is both the subject and the object of the search. We are pretty awesome when you think about it. But how does John feel about this definition of love? I think, he's, I think he's coming at this from a completely different angle. According to John, true love of God is to be so oriented toward Christ that we walk according to his commandments. It says that right here. To be so focused on him that we walk in the way that he teaches us. Christ meets us at the margins. Yes, none of us is so far lost. None of us has done too many bad things that Christ cannot come and find us. But when he does find us, his love is a transforming love. He calls us out of the darkness and into his light. He says, stop walking that way, which is a culture of death, and walk with me toward the culture of life. And if you have any doubt, look at what John says in verse 9. He doubles down when he says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. And to abide, like the dude in the Big Lebowski, to abide is to dwell in the presence continuously. To live day by day, moment by moment, uh, with the teachings of Christ as a central part of your life, not to leave the Holy Spirit abided with Christ throughout his whole ministry. They were inseparable. It's not to visit a place like you're on vacation. It's to live there as a permanent dwelling. And according to John, it's not just abiding in his commandments, but also us abiding with each other together as a community that are the marks of a true child of God. You see here, John reminds the church that living the Christian life is not a solo project. The only way to love one another, as he says in verse 5, is to be with one another. The purpose of being with one another is because we are the body of Christ. This is hopefully where we hear the gospel preached every week. This is uh, where despite all of its imperfections, we're fed at his table, where we challenge each other, where we encourage each other, where we exhort each other, where we work out the details of what does it look like to be faithful in the modern world. And this invitation that Christ offers to us is not just to get us to agree to some abstract principles, something we call the truth, but it's a personal invitation from a personal God, to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is to enter into uh, a relationship where we die to ourselves and we live to him to permit his teachings, his lifestyle, his Holy Spirit to completely renovate our lives. It's not to invite him to be a life coach. 
is not to ask him for good advice. It's to submit to a complete renovation, top to bottom. And this is why walking in the truth is so important. What John is saying, I believe, is that if you haven't had an encounter with the living God that somehow changes you, that changes the way you walk, that changes the way you think, then whatever you've encountered is not the living God. It may be something different. Come and see him. Well, that's really it. I mean, I, well, let's just sum it up. I mean, at this point, this is it. This is the point. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. You can write that down if you want. In fact, why don't you say it with me? This is love that we walk according to his commandments, right? So for those of you who are impatient, you can go. <laughs> but you have to do it. And you have to come back next week and you have to tell me how it worked out. So, so far this is law, isn't it? How do we walk according to his commandments? What empowers us? What enables us to do that? On what do we lean on to make that happen? Like every Christian, we're going to struggle with doing this. And I think part of what John is saying is when we struggle, we need to ask ourselves, who do we love? What do we love? What is it that's sitting in that office chair of our lives telling us what to do and what to run after? What things will give us joy? more than living and abiding in Christ. Which is why I think it's so important that this isn't the end of John's letter. Where he goes next in verse 7, and it may seem first like a little bit of a non sequitur. Uh, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, Now, why does John go from a simple exhortation, walk in truth and love and obey his commandments to this kind of obscure and doctrinal issue? So in order to make that connection, I think we need uh, a little background and, of course, a movie reference. So uh, in my mind goes to The Matrix. I think it was 1999. You remember the movie. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it ends, but... The statute of limitations has expired, if you haven't seen it already. Um, The Wachowski brothers, the trilogy, Keanu Reeves, and the whole plot was that our hero, Neo, um, was given secret knowledge. So he was given secret knowledge, and that secret knowledge enabled him to escape the mundane dimensions of his everyday life. And that secret knowledge was essentially that the whole world that Neo lived in, the Matrix, was imaginary. It was make-believe. It wasn't real. None of it was real. We weren't, it was like a walking dream. None of it actually existed. And through the power of his secret knowledge, the red pill, Neo, had his own kind of epiphany. And not only did he learn that it wasn't real, but he was given the power to overcome it. And so as you watch Neo go through his evolution, his own personal Uh, epiphany, he learns how to hack the matrix. And so pretty soon he's able to dodge bullets and he's able to jump over buildings and he's able to fly. And eventually he overcomes the power of death itself, all so that he could live a more authentic life. And his objective, of course, basically as as it related to the matrix was it was all completely corrupt. There was nothing redeemable about it. And his job was to tear it all down. And to let us all be free. 
Now, if I remember right, his actual authentic existence really wasn't that awesome either. But that's, I digress, <clears throat> that's, um, but that's a modern and artistic expression, that whole series of an issue that John and the churches were dealing with even back when this letter was written. In the pagan communities in which John was ministering, um, the prevailing philosophical worldview said that all of creation, the whole cosmos, our bodies, everything was inherently evil and beyond redemption. There was nothing good about it. We, as individuals, were basically spirits trapped, chained to a physical body that we were kind of dragging along with us. And the goal was to escape it all, burn it all down, climb the ladder to enlightenment, and you can live a better life. In later years, this idea would be known as Gnosticism, brought to you by the letter G. Gnosis, Greek word for knowledge, brought to you by the letter K. Don't add, I don't make the rules. Secret knowledge would set you free from the matrix. And this, this particular worldview, the prevailing worldview, had a really, really difficult time with the idea that God, who was spirit, would have anything to do with the material world, anything to do at all with the material world, um, much less be born into it, to live it like a baby, to get the diaper slapped on and to deal with all of the pain and the suffering and the indignities and even death that we have to deal with. That just did not really compute. So even in John's day, there were people running around going, look, Okay, Jesus is really cool. And, I mean, he's done some really interesting things. I would like to talk more about the things that he has done. But whatever he is, whatever he was, there's no way that he could be God in the flesh. That just, I mean, we, we all agree that can't happen. Their worldview didn't allow them to consider that. And, of course, whatever you do, you don't want to take him too literally <laughs> because that would be crazy. And there was a whole set of isms, if you're a, a bit of a historian, uh, where they, they tried to work around this in, in, in non-biblical ways. So you have docetism. The docetists thought that Jesus was some sort of astral projection, that he was divine, but he wasn't really human. He didn't have a human body, and so he was kind of a walking ghost. You had Eb the Ebionists. They said that, well, Jesus is not divine at all. He's just human. He's entirely human, apparently a very confused human based on the things that he said. But anyway, that's what they said. Uh, the Ebionists, they said, well, you know, Jesus is um, made of divine stuff, but it's like a cheap discount store version. It's not the same divine stuff that God is made of. Um, so there's all kinds of different ways um, to try to get around this. And I could go on. And some of the earliest church confessions, including the one we read this morning, were written in curiously specific ways to overcome these heresies. It's like, all right, thanks for the history lesson. That's very interesting. <clears throat> um, but I would argue that these same ideas are still at work in the world today. One of the ways these ideas are still at work are uh, explicit ways. Some of the people that may knock on your door in your neighborhood and say, please, sir or madam, do you have a moment to talk about Jesus, still represent um, heretical churches that believe some of these things. But even aside from that, you're like, oh, nobody in this room has fallen for that kind of stuff. I think what John is saying, what I would say is, 
Gnostic thinking still tends to creep in to our life because the message of the Gnostics is ultimately a message of a culture of death. And the message of Christ come in the flesh is life. Now, you know, we can agree with certain things with our Gnostic neighbors. This world is not the way it's supposed to be, is it? We know that. We get sick. We die. We can feel it in our bones. This is not the way things are supposed to be. We're not comfortable in our own skin. We wrestle with our identities. We wrestle with all of the fallen and broken parts of our nature. But we completely disagree with them on the diagnosis and, more importantly, on the prognosis. Because we know, because Scripture tells us, that this is not the way God created the world, is it? He created it good. He created us good. He declared it good. And if there was any doubt about this, he came and inhabited it himself. The page after page of Scripture is full of God's delight in his creation, the message of creation. And I think Paul goes on about this in Romans, is that there is this great God of infinite power and infinite love and infinite wisdom infinite generosity that's behind all of this. He made you. He delights in you. And he wants to amazingly abide with you. And not on some ethereal plane, not on some intellectual dimension, not someday, but here and now, even in the nitty and the gritty and the brokenness of our current lives. The Gnostic worldview says this world is no good, there is no future in it, nothing in this world is worth saving, it all must be escaped, and in order to escape it, it offers you a ladder. If you do these things, you too can overcome. Christ comes, and he offers us a cross. He says, I came down on this cross to save you. If your reality isn't perfect from the Gnostic worldview, guess whose fault it is? It's your fault. If you're not jumping over buildings, if you're not flying like Neo, if you haven't overcome death, you just haven't worked hard enough yet. You better get busy. So uh, the problem is, I think, is John is concerned about this thinking seeping into the church and also many of the ways it continues to seep into the lives of people who call themselves Christians so many ways. We could talk about um, uh, current, uh, the current uh, debate over sexual ethics, for example. That um, <clears throat> on the one hand, I mean, if, we, if we're tempted to think that somehow our bodies are consumable, that they're low, that they're disposable, then how could God possibly be concerned about what we do with them? And so we, we tend to overindulge on the one hand. We say, God doesn't care. He's not watching. He, he's really busy. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. Or maybe you take the opposite approach and you're like a Buddhist and you're like, you know, really the key to happiness is killing all desire. That's the key. So you try to, you try to kill all the desire. You become an aesthetic. You don't eat, you don't touch, you don't enjoy any part of life. You try to redefine our matrix, our reality to, to, to fit around us. And this may sound silly, but we have all kinds of examples of people trying to live this out today. You may have read in the news just recently, there was a man in Europe who um, petitioned to have his legal age changed on his birth certificate. Of course, it was to be younger. I know you were thinking, but no, it was to be younger 
Because, as he said, he said, my reality is I feel like a much younger man and I'm having trouble dating when it says on my profile I'm in my 60s. So really, please, I should be in my 40s. So far, he has not prevailed. But you can't, I mean, you see what he's trying to do. He's trying to redefine his reality according to the way he wants it. And, uh, and a rare nod also to walking the talk. The Wachowski brothers, Larry and Andy, the creative power behind the Matrix, are now known as Lily and Lana Wachowski, the Wachowski sisters. They're hacking their own Matrix. I still don't think they can leap over buildings or fly or uh, overcome death, but when God created the universe and when he entered into it, He did it in a sexually differentiated way, and he declared it good. There's something essential, essentially good, and essentially important about the way he created this universe. And the message of the incarnation, that Christ has come in the flesh, he suffered in the flesh, he's been risen in the flesh, that he is today at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in the flesh, and that someday when he returns to the earth, in the flesh, to live with us in eternity is the opposite of all of that. That gives us death. This gospel gives us hope. What we do with our bodies affects our soul. What we do with our souls affects our bodies. We are integrated beings by design. That's the way God wanted it to be. And if we had any doubt, he came and he took on human flesh himself to show us how important It was. The reason that Christians are always going on about sexual ethics is not because we hold the body in low regard. It's the opposite. It's because we think it's cosmically important. And that means that God, of course, is concerned about not only what we do with our bodies, but what we do with his world. So what we do in this world, it matters to God. It's his world. And we could go on and on. We could talk about what Christians throughout history have done plenty of good, healthy debates about what the role is for the individual Christian in the church and society. But hey, Christians invented the hospital. They invented the university. Our whole world belongs to God. We should take that seriously. He's not content just to come into this world to save us from the world. He's at work redeeming all of creation. And he invites us into it. That's an amazing claim and you see why you start to see why this is such a big deal for John and why he connects it to walking in truth and walking in love why the coming of Christ in the flesh and the fact that he takes the physical world so seriously should not only give us hope but joy it's not an inconvenient truth that Jesus Christ came in the flesh it's a glorious truth And all of those who deny that Christ has come in the flesh are essentially saying, I'll show you what you must do to escape it. And in by coming in the flesh, Jesus is God himself saying, I have come. I've come for you. And if we're ever tempted to say, God, you don't understand. You don't understand how difficult it is down here. You can say, yes, I do. And if we're tempted to think, I don't know if I have any hope in the future of this world. Everything seems to be just going so badly, he says, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly in the here and the now. 
Uh, it's been at least a week, and we haven't had a C.S. Lewis reference, so <clears throat> here we go. Um, I think C.S. Lewis really gets this, and this is one of the reasons why I've always liked him so much. And here's an example that I thought of when I was reading this text. It's from the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you haven't read them, that's your New Year's resolution, James. And the particular book out of the story I was thinking of was Prince Caspian. And in Prince Caspian, Aslan, who's the Christ figure, uh, comes to the aid of the Narnians. Things are going really, really badly. It's a dark moment. Aslan appears. And when Aslan appears, there's a party. I mean, like a real party, like a feast. But what's so interesting to me about the way that C.S. Lewis depicts this is in addition to Aslan, he has the Greek god Bacchus, and the Menads, they were like the ravers of the ancient Greek world, appear with Aslan. Like, what is going on? But as you read it, you understand that both Bacchus and the Menads have been redeemed by the presence of Aslan. And so nobody is getting drunk and nobody's getting out of control. But the feast goes on. And here's a quote. They began to dance, it was the Menads he was talking about, and Bacchus, and where they touched each other, or the earth, the feast, came into existence. And thus Aslan feasted the Narnians till long after the sunset had died away and the stars had come out, and the best thing about this feast was that there was not breaking up or going away, but as the talk grew quieter and slower, one after another would begin to nod and fall off to sleep with feet toward the fire and good friends on either side. But why Bacchus? Is Lewis some sort of a crypto-gnostic? I mean, actually, some people would probably say he was, uh, but I disagree. I think he's on to something, and why do I say that? Think back to Christ's first miracle. It was a wedding. The wedding at Cana. And what was the crisis? They had run out of wine. Very embarrassing social situation. And Jesus makes wine from water. And what kind of wine does he make? The good stuff. I mean, so good that people can't stop talking about it. Like, where did you get this stuff? And not just a little bit of wine, not the little communion cup wine. Bathtubs full of wine. You start to see why some people accused him of being a drunkard, because obviously if you have a wine, you must drink to excess. So why did Christ make his inaugural miracle, arguably his first and most important one, his signature miracle, the making of wine at a wedding? Because Christ has come, not just to save us from our sin, but to give us festival joy. The bridegroom has come to his own. The elect lady and her children, the redemption party is already started. And where Christ is, wherever he is, wherever we're in the presence of Christ, wherever people abide with him, there is wholeness and there is restoration and there is redemption and there is healing and there is fellowship and there is peace and there is joy. As C.S. Lewis goes on to say in his, his essay, The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we're rejecting Christ and his commandments because we think it's going to cost us joy, what John is saying is you're missing the point. You're missing the point of Christ come in the flesh. If you think living the Christian life consists mainly of some abstract concepts that you would sign up for, John is saying you're missing the point of Christ come in the flesh. If you aren't walking with Christ and if you're not walking with other Christians, John is saying... You're missing the point of Christ come in the flesh. And this is a glorious and sobering truth which produces joy and it reintegrates us with God and with each other and with our own bodies. It is what we mean when we say incarnational. And when the day comes when his kingdom is finally fully fulfilled, where is he going to be? He's going to be here on earth with us, his people, in the flesh. As it says in Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him as their God. The message of Christ come in the flesh is the gospel hope. It tells us that God not only likes this world, he loves it for all of its brokenness. He loves you. He loves you enough to enter into it and walk with you. He loves you enough to call you out of your darkness, out of your culture of death, into his culture of life. The message of the incarnation is that God was not grossed out or humiliated, to take on a human body. He wasn't slumming it temporarily. He didn't discard it after the resurrection. He wasn't play-acting. Like Bill mentioned last week, I fully believe when we see him again, we will still see his scars on his human body that he wears right now. And yes, those scars do tell the story of the price he paid to redeem us. But they also remind us that we're never alone. And that when we do suffer, it has meaning, and it has dignity, and it has a purpose. And I think they're going to be there forever as a testimony to the eternal glory of the embodied life. Look around you. I mean, literally, look around you. What do you see this morning? Ordinary humanity. And this is where he has chosen to meet us. Having some sort of body and some sort of tangible world is an essential part of his plan for our happiness, for our wholeness, and for our true beauty. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, there's that word again, and the life. You shall know the truth, I am the truth, and the truth will set you free. Today on Epiphany Sunday, can you see it? Can you see it? 
Can you see it in all of its scarred glory? Can you see it not just as true and necessary and academic, but beautiful and lovely and life-giving and encouraging? Have you had your own epiphany? Let today be the day. Have you seen Christ come to give you festival joy? And until that day, when he comes again, and when our faith will be sight, my exhortation to us, the children of the elect lady, is that let us continue the journey in the here and now, in the flesh, farther on, and deeper in. Amen.